Welcome, everybody, once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, today's episode. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. We are going to cover a classic topic, something that we can't really run enough of because there are so many views on this and so many things to consider. We've done this topic maybe three or four times in the past three years on Business Creators Radio. This is one of those timeless things, just like the debate over long form versus short form sales letters. It's how to learn to sell what people are buying. Yeah, actually sell what people are buying. Sounds simple, but then how do you know what people are buying? What is this going to get that response from them? To help us understand this, we have with us a man named John Voris, who you are going to love hearing from. Let me tell you a little bit about him. After years of unsuccessful cold call selling, John Voris decided to throw out everything and take a fresh approach. Drawing on his degree in philosophy, he invented a groundbreaking selling technique that while appearing to be counterintuitive, has an unprecedented success rate. Now, as CEO of Authentic Systems, John educates on how identifying a client's underlying motivation in life holds the key to success in sales. John is passionate about helping others to master what it took him years to discover, which is learning to sell what people are buying. John Voris, the weather's fine. Come on in. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So excited here. Uh, what we like to do here on Business Creators Radio before we dive in, and I know you have a lot of things that you requested we cover, and we're going to get to as many of those as we can in our hour together. I read off your official bio, tell us a little bit about your story, which is great. What we'd like to do is just go a little bit deeper and give our listeners who are right now leaning in, binging the Yahoo out of the Googles, discovering more about this John Voris and his company, Authentic Systems. Tell us a little bit about your journey, John, and what's brought you to where you are right now, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community, market, and audience. I'd be more than happy to. Um, it really began with a, a tremendous amount of failure. Um, I, uh, I tried door-to-door sales four times in a row and was fired. Then uh, I tried again, or I went to workshops and uh, seminars and tried again, and three more times uh, I quit before I got fired so I wouldn't have to go through the humiliation. So what I decided to do was abandon everything I had learned in sales because my degree in philosophy focused on the philosophy of language. And language is such a large topic, it would fill a modest bookstore which gives you an idea of what's not being taught in sales. Another issue for me was the difference between Western psychology and European psychology was uh, Western is based on analysis. It's all definition. And European comes from the approach of what does it mean to be human? And so I tried that European approach 
and it worked. Within about three months, I had a pattern, and about six months later, I had a model that I used for 20 years. So I did door-to-door -door cold calling in the San Francisco Bay Area for 20 years, and my ratio was 14 out of 20 sales. And it's all based on learning what language is really and how to use it and the difference between trying to sell someone and trying to sell what they want to buy. See, what I love about that, and I knew you were going to share this with us as one of the first things, is how you look into the thought process and what goes into what we define as selling. I mean, you see all these models and you, know, you mentioned the the door-to-door -door model where somebody literally goes door-to-door -door, whether it's magazines knives vacuum cleaners health aids whatever it is and they try and sell it door-to-door -door. now it's kind of interesting in this day and age that most people don't answer their door even if they're home and they even have these little apps and where they actually are known as apps that are either infuse into their doorbell or become their doorbell where they got a camera pointed at you and they want to know what you want. Well, I have to stop you there. That's not who I called on. Believe okay. Me. I called on businesses. So I want you to imagine that I've got a, a brochure and I've got a pad to write in the orders and I'm walking down your main street, wherever that is. And I'm knocking on doors like accountants, uh, uh, doctors, beauty salons, antique shops, gas stations, uh, metal art. Um, I just called on businesses only. And what I sold them was food. It's, do you know um, the uh, Schwann man? Yes. You've heard? Well, I'm the Schwann man without the truck. Uh-huh. So uh, beauty salons, all of those, I just walked in the door, introduced myself, and sold. And um, that's what I did for those 20 years. Yeah, that uh, you were really putting in the work there because what you described is a lot easier said than done. And this is why we actually have you on the show today to show us what you discovered. So you gave us a series of things that you want us to cover here. And we're going to do them more or less in order because I know this builds up to a point. So let's start with a question that I alluded to when I introduced you, the idea of learning to sell what people are buying. But how do you know what they're buying? So do you really know your prospect? Okay. Well, the reason why I uh, had that question is um, because we pro we're taught to approach uh, prospects by what they say they want, uh -huh. but not what really motivates them between what they say. That's the difference. That's where philosophy of language comes in. It may be true that I think, therefore I am, but I'm not where I think. Where you think is not you, it's the you that motivates the thinking. And that can be accessed. So that's what I learned to do. Because language only represents what we want and desire, but it only represents it. In fact, I met, uh, uh, called on uh, auto shop, it was called Beback Motors. And he called it that because the, the prospect would say everything they want, and he would say, and give them everything they wanted, and then, of course, they'd say, well, I'll think about it and be back. So what's the disconnect? They listened to what the prospect said, and they didn't understand what motivates that. And so there are techniques and ways to do it. One is everything that surrounds a person 
conforms to who they are because what you surround yourself with are previous decisions. Everything around you was a decision that you made because you liked it or wanted it, whatever. It could be, the, the, of course, the computer, your desk, your lamp, uh, in an office could be uh, all the uh, uh, objects you have around the, uh, your room, be photos of uh, when you went fishing and camping and uh, pictures of your family, it could be anything. But we always surround ourselves with what conforms and expresses who we are. So if that's true, why can't I read those objects and find what motivates that person? And that's what I did. That's really interesting. So I even hadn't thought of that. And I'm familiar with the idea of the difference between what people say they want and what they think they want versus what makes them actually respond in the way you want them to respond, which gets into thought processes and psychology. But that's a new angle even for me, and I appreciate you bringing it up, to look around and see what decisions they've already made. Exactly. And, exactly. and uh, can you give us an example of how doing that type of assessment or analysis helped you determine whether somebody was really a prospect for your business or what you're offering? Well, I'll go into a, a, a metaphor that I use. Um, imagine we're going to call on a a carpenter, a master carpenter, 20 years. So what would it take to be a master carpenter? They have to really understand detail. They have to be very patient. They have to understand math very well. They have to be uh, orient themselves to uh, space object relationships. There are some really basic things that they need to be, not to do, but to be. So would you say that a 20-year uh, uh, veteran in uh, uh, carpentry, say finishing carpentry, um, uh, would be impatient? I would say so. Would they be impatient? Maybe. I don't know. You won't find one. Yeah. See, that's the difference between imagination and, practice and what really happens. We can all imagine, well, there's got to be an impatient carpenter, but we'll never find it. But we're designed that way because we have to be open to all possibilities. That's how the brain functions. Right. Okay. So, so if I were to go to um, uh, a master carpenter and sell them something, I would say, this person's patient. How about they, what, what happened if they didn't understand math very well? Do you think you'd find one of those? I think it's very possible. There are a lot of people that don't know math very well. Maybe a few less in the master carpenter area because they got to measure stuff, but it wouldn't surprise me if they found a way to do it without algebra or geometry. Oh, no, not that. They don't even use that. No, I mean just understanding math, period. I, I, don't, I, under, I don't understand math, period. So, well, yeah. It's a measure, uh, a professional now. They have to know how to measure correctly. They have to know when things are out of line. Uh, they have to be very detailed. They're going to be a little artistic at the same time because they have to envision the final product. There's a lot of uh, uh, natural abilities that are involved with being a professional carpenter. Sure. And especially a 20-year master would have to be almost perfect in every area. Okay. Yeah, now see what I'm getting at? The problem in this country, in America, is we're driven to the idea that we can do anything. But that doesn't mean we should. Right. Not only that, but if you could do anything, you'd have to have the skills, 
of a preacher and a robber at the same time. You'd have to be, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It I get work, what you're saying with that, yes. It doesn't work that way. What it works is you have spent your life designing your identity and it's conforming to who you are. That's why friends and relatives can rely on you uh, for many, many things. And, and, and you'll follow through because that's who you are. We spend our entire life defining who we are. That's very important. So if I, was a, if I tried to be a carpenter, I'd last two weeks. I'm extremely impatient. Uh, I don't really care about math that much. Yeah. Uh, and I would measure things. I've measured things three or four times and, and been off with the space I'm trying to fill. Yeah. So, it's, there's so, many, so that's my point. It's just like we can all sing, but does that make us singers? We can all write, but does that make us writers? And Europeans know that. They know the difference. But the magic is finding out who you really are, and that's where your power is. Not in trying to be someone else, but in who you actually are. And so this is also what I help people do, is find uh, their natural motivation beneath their personality. And so when they find it, they, it all comes together. All the things they've ever done in life. And whether it's where they live, the jobs they've had, the relationships they've had, it all comes together because they can see what's been there motivating them their entire life. So I use that as an example and say, um, this is what it means to be a, a master carpenter. So make it simple. I walk in the door and I'm going to imagine this person having these traits and say, okay, how can I language my widget, whatever I'm selling toward that that person I'm saying, the characteristics that I'm saying. So what I would do is be very patient. I would talk about the long-term goals, long-term benefits, if that's essential. And I'll be very slow in my speaking, very methodical, very particular, and very detailed. And that's how I would sell the carpenter. Now, when I went, on, went to the beauty salon and I saw the uh -huh. owner, that's all out the window. Why? Because this person is going to be very... Uh, uh, personable, uh, fun, uh, they're interested in beauty, they're interested in creativity, uh, they, uh, they, they're all involved in having a good experience. So I would walk in and say, oh, hey, you know, I just love Janet about a block down. Do you know Janet? Uh, yeah, I do. Oh, she just bought this, that, and the other from me. Hey, how about taking a look at my list? I would have to go through anything else. I really wouldn't. Yeah. And if I were to go through the detail, I'd bore her to death and she'd tell me to leave. See, this is what right. happens with sales. They usually give a one-size-fits-all pitch. I had four pitches because people are guided by uh, four archetypes, which we haven't gotten into yet, uh, love, justice, wisdom, and power. And this, I discovered, has been consistent throughout history since, the, since uh, Egyptian writing. Um, and many scholars have repeated this. Um, so I would have four different scripts and I would walk in, I walk in and approach them four different ways because I would know automatically the general idea of who they are just by looking at the business they're in. Yeah. So when I would walk down a street, I wouldn't walk that, I wouldn't want to open up each door as I went. I actually looked at the some symbolic meaning of even buildings streets uh i would how they decorated their window what of course what business they're in and i would keep on uh, uh, uh judging what the symbols i'm i'm seeing are 
And then I would say, hello, I introduced myself. And when I introduced myself, I had to count it. That's a little game I played. And so if I walked in and I saw this wasn't quite the symbol I wanted, then I would walk out and I wouldn't say anything and I wouldn't count it. So I might see 20 uh, accounts, uh, 20 accounts to see them, but I'd walk past maybe 60 businesses. So that's how I got 14 out of 20. So it's so part of the magic was actually in the businesses you didn't stop into at all. It wasn't just a matter you literally went door to door. Right. You were strategic about which doors you knocked on, which doors you opened. And then when you went in, you had a you had an assessment criteria to determine which of four scripts or which of four patterns you would use with the person based on looking at not only their your initial assessment of their personality when they greeted you in return, but also the decisions they made. How was their shop decorated? What kind of business were they in? What are the characteristics it takes to succeed in the business they're in? And you pulled all that together to create an assessment of how you best reach them. Exactly. Because where they're at, they're doing it because they want to be. And yeah. that's so important. So if you're surrounded by people you want to be with and objects you, that help you express who you are, then it's obvious. Everything around you expresses who you are. All you have to do is read it. Yeah. Um, I... I just thought of the the most basic and, and this is so far basic that I think it makes the point of how to understand your prospect for example I remember when I was in college and I bought my 1988 Chevrolet Camaro I wanted a Camaro for two years and I finally got one so I drive the thing home and I get all these people asking well where are the t-tops it has no t-tops Oh God! Okay. They didn't think they did, they thought. Oh well, if you have a Camaro, you're going to get T-tops. Well, first of all, I had already done the research and I knew the T-tops were crap. I mean, I mean that's my personal opinion, and somebody wants to fight me over it, whatever. But if you if you think the T-tops are great, ask yourself how many cars are made today with T-tops, and the answer is what zero. So that's number one. Number two, that took nothing into account of what I what I really wanted to do with the car. Part of the reason I was attracted to the, to the third generation Camaro is because it has that really big sloping hatch window with a thick glass on it that creates a great bandpass for building bass and sound pressure levels using subwoofers pointing upward. Oh, interesting. In other words, in other words I didn't want a T-top car. I wanted a system car. And to have a good system car, you got to have things nice and tight and insulated, which is the exact opposite of what T-Tops does for you. Very good. Yeah, now, so, yeah. for example, if I was standing by your car and I was a salesman, I walk up to you and, oh, gee, this is a real nice car. Uh, tell me about it. What, uh, how did you get this car? And you would do just that. And so, in the end, I understand that you're really a person who enjoys systems. Yeah. And details the system. Interesting. So yeah. I would describe what I'm selling in a systematic way that could appeal to you and conform to who you are. You're going to drive me, you're going to drive me to the car in your lot that is the best possible one to build a killer sound system in. There you go. And that's when that's where you're going to lean your approach. In my book Groundhog Day is an event not a business strategy. I tell the story about the guy who walked onto the lot and he was looking at a nice red convertible and the salesman came out and started telling him about uh, what the convertible top was made of and how the cams and cylinders work and everything and the guy said whoa 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 I'm here looking for a convertible that drives nice goes fast and looks damn good with the top down and me driving it 
That was his bottom line. He wanted a fast car that made him look good driving it. Exactly. All you, you got to do is put him in a car that looks good and tell him how handsome he is sitting behind the wheel and you've made that sale. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, I was asked to uh, uh, give a lecture to some uh, salespeople who sold uh, uh, equipment, the health equipment. And so their problem was that they people walk in and they would ask them what they wanted. They would they would tell them and they'd say, here's the model you want and be back. I'll be back the same old. So um, uh, what I said was, wait a minute, what, what are you selling? What do you think you're selling? Uh, cardio, uh, muscle tone, skin, weight loss. And they're going through all this, this, these physical descriptions. And so then I stood there and I said, no, you're not selling that at all. What's your age groups? And they said, oh, about 35 and to 45. Okay, you're not selling any of that. You're selling sex. Everybody say that, sex, S-E-X. And that's sex, exactly. yes, I'll say it. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly what. They were all divorced. They're just freshly divorced. They don't even want to buy the machine. They're not out there to tone up. They're not out to do any of that. Give me the cheapest one on the floor and let me get out of here. And they're, they're, yeah, they're ultimately, and I'll, I'll take even one step further. You said what, freshly divorced people and they're, 30s to early 40s. Yeah, yeah. These are people that are looking to get laid and do all the kinky shit that they passed by when they married their first spouse at age 21. Oh, very good. Very yeah. Good. Trust yeah. me from being out in the field myself. I, I understand. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I understand. yes. So, so to get to my point is now I said when they walk in the door and they want the cheapest one, you take them to the cheapest one and you sell it. In six months, they had to buy a warehouse. A warehouse. A warehouse to hold all the equipment that had been ordered from the people who'd come in the store and say, well, gee, I really want that. They just didn't have enough of the cheapest ones. So they went out and had to buy, oh, they got a deal is what happened. And so yeah. they got the deal and they, they filled this warehouse for all these uh, cheap uh, machines, but they sold them. So, I mean, I increased their profits by 30, 40% in a matter of six months. And all it was was, selling to the, the, the prospect what they really wanted to buy. And that's what's missed. Corporations yeah. sit around and think about what their person wants to buy, and they don't know, they guess. And they go out right. and do field research, and, and they test everybody but the very person that they're selling to. Yeah. Because they don't know who they are. And see, when you went into there, what I'm picking up, you know, and, I, and I said it quite bluntly, these are people who are now in an area of sexual exploration now that they're newly free from the bonds of their first round of matrimony. Uh, they're thinking, I want to work up a sweat and get toned so that uh, I'm attractive to people I want to attract. They're not really concerned about, well, what's the most deluxe machine and the one that uh, is scientifically designed to do this certain thing with this certain muscle. They just want to hop on the thing and work up a sweat and drop some pounds. You got it. Thank That's you. it. And, you, and, uh, and I mean, you can, you can do that if you just train yourself how to jog in the park. So it's not a real big step to get the cheapest possible machine that they can hop on, do the thing. Break up, break break into a sweat and drop a few pounds because that's what they want. Period. Exactly. But, but what's interesting is none of them there understood that, and the corporation didn't understand that, and, and there was nothing about the brochures, nothing about anything. This was all about the, the physical scientific uh, approach to selling uh, these machines, and missed the point altogether. Yeah, you're, uh, yeah, what uh, their actual audience was not entirely dissimilar, dissimilar from the audience 
that would be excited about reading the Fifty Shades of Grey books. Got it. Yeah. They weren't there really uh, looking to become Olympic athletes. They were looking for something else. See, you got that when you say, have everybody say aloud, sex. Yeah. And, I, and I developed a little bit further just to really underscore the point that in reality, that's what got them to respond in a way that led to a buying behavior. That's right. And uh, what I tell uh, in my workshops, uh, my uh, participants, is that uh, the object and the people and the events that we surround ourselves with are our props. Imagine we're in a theater. And these are props. And we use these props to play out our individual dramas. That's, what's that's what objects do. Objects enable us to express our authentic identities and uh, develop ourselves. And as a prop, the prop tells everyone around them who they are because they use that particular prop. And, and that is uh, really very basic in Europe, European psychology. Right. And that come, yeah, and, and uh, that comes from phenomenology, existentialism, and, and praxeology, and a lot of things you don't want to know. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, that, but that's where it comes from. It's, it's common knowledge. You come out here, and it isn't. It's from, uh, from analysis. Uh, they analyze uh, what they sold in the past. Oh, this is what the people uh, obviously want to buy, and this is how we're going to promote it. And if the sales aren't up, they all scratch their head, and they're really missing it. Correct, uh, correct, because they're taking a, what I see as a backward analytical view. I figured out when I was first uh, got out of college and got a job that as soon as I heard the phrase, "Well, that's how we've always done it," I say, "Oh shoot!" Thank you. Yeah, we are in trouble now, and uh, and part of what made me quote unquote unemployable is that even at age twenty three, I knew enough when I heard that statement to say, "Oh, so somehow you're still in business despite having done that." Congratulations. Right. right. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Prove to me that it's actually a better scenario than that because that's the base. That's the baseline. Exactly. Um, and uh, know that what I had to do is I had to create a, um, uh, a crutch, you might say, because I had failed seven times in a row. Oh, and right. by, by the way, I was married and had a child at the time. So can you imagine failing seven times in a row and facing it again? I was terrified. So I had to find a way to get around all the obstacles that the uh, sales training industry out here had created for me. That's for me now. Because there are people out there that are very talented and skilled, and they and, and they take these courses and become very successful. That's that I know. I'm talking about the people that slip through the cracks, like me, who right. went through all that, and I, I just didn't. I just wasn't able to do it. But um, one of uh, uh, main principles that I learned was, I was so frustrated with uh, sales trainers saying they need this, they need that, they need this. You got to sell all the needs, decide what they need. Well, none of that is true. None of it's true. The human mind only has one need, one. And that is perpetual need to express their identity. And they do it through conforming objects, people, and events. They only have one. That's it. And, uh, and uh, when you analyze war, it actually uh, uh, destroys any American idea of motivation. It throws it right out the window. Okay. But Europeans understand it. And that is, that my point right there is that you have to express your authentic. This is what uh, Frederick uh, Nietzsche came with when he created the, when he uh, did his books uh, 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 of power. Yeah. Uh, 
that's the idea is uh, your will to power is I have a will and I'm going to power myself over this uh, hill. I'm a soldier and I'm going to risk being killed and I've got nothing to look forward to, but maybe getting killed. And they, they go toward that hill or the mountain or whatever it might be. And it's not about uh, uh, having attention. It's not about the money they're going to make. It's not about uh, their biological functions and those needs. It's about who they are and they need to express that. Martyrs yeah. is an excellent example uh, of that. And so when you start getting into different types of motivation, Europeans really have a good grip on it. Yeah, I, I, I see that. And sometimes looking at what the motivation really is. Now, you made me, when you went back to Nietzsche and, and the will to power, which I'm familiar with, what I sometimes think of when I hear that is you, um, all these movies on networks like the Hallmark Channel and the Lifetime movie network and things like that, especially come out around Christmas time. And there are the stories about the, the guy who left his hometown and struck it rich in the big city and then came back to visit his parents for Christmas. And then he uh, runs into his seventh grade crush. And then ultimately he uh, uh, has to prove his worthiness to her by fighting off that other guy she's been dating or what have you. And I look at that and I'm thinking, screw that. I'll go find some chick that wants me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very good. I like that. I, I don't have to fight someone. She wants me or she doesn't. If not, you know, <laughs> I mean, come on, come on. Uh, and but the reason I think of that is because, and, and I'm, and I'm so glad that you, know, you see the humor when I say stuff like that. I, our audience, we've, you know, found out through testing loves when I drop those little bombs once in a while, by the way. And that's the one you guys are waiting for is that, um, you know, to me, it speaks to uh, a programming that we have that we need to prove ourselves over things that you've got to demonstrate that you're manlier than that other guy she likes. I'm thinking, okay, she either likes me or she doesn't. There's another woman if she doesn't. Well, yeah. And yeah. Also, uh, but yeah, if you, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other thing is if you force it on that other person, what's going to happen is five years from now, uh, after you've got a couple of kids, uh, you forced her into it and she's going to find somebody else. And now yeah. you're going to get divorced and now you're going to be stuck with payments. So I have the whole scenario right there. You just don't do yeah. it. Actually, yeah. actually, I'll tell you where she's going to be in five years and where he will probably be too. They're both going to be in that fitness store uh, looking to buy the cheapest possible go. equipment so they can lose a few pounds and attract the opposite or same sex or whatever it is they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, so oh, yeah. the circles of life right there, going back to your initial point about looking at the decisions they have made and how those bring you to other decisions. So they get into a relationship and they get married because it's what they're supposed to do. Exactly. And, then, and then 10 years and three years later, 10 years and three kids later, they say, oh, hell no. So now they're looking to buy at-home gym equipment. That's right. That's, <laughs> I know, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the whole idea of the, uh, well, uh, what I do is I first assess people, and uh, it's like a uh, Myers-Briggs on stories. I, I, I actually, it's a one-on-one, -on -one, and I ask them just very simple questions, such as, uh, what was uh, the last event that made you upset or angry? And then I'll ask you, what uh, event made you happy? And in both instances, they will give me enough information that I could trace it back to, to who they are because they're both tethered to who they are. And that's a real revelation in the moment. And this is a lot of my clients really have epiphanies right there.
because what you like and what you dislike are connected because the idea of liking and disliking enables us to create our own identities or I shouldn't say that about create the style in which to express our identities. That's yeah. And you know, I'm wondering if, and we're doing some comparison between the American and European psychological models for decision-making and things like that. I wonder if there's something, and I don't know whether this is a uniquely American thing or maybe it's a European thing, maybe it's an Asian thing or a South Pacific thing or an Inuit thing, who the hell knows? But here's what, here's an example from my own experience. When I was young, I was classified as gifted. Uh, I think they majored my IQ at something like 138, 136, give or take. And they moved me from the first to the second grade right in the middle of the year because they said I was bored in first grade. Now, you know, all that did wonders for my social life growing up, you can imagine. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but see, here's, here's what happened. Uh, even, you know, throughout the whole educational process, there were most, most topics I could breeze through. English, creative writing, uh, history, civics, all that type of stuff. I, I could, I mean, those are things that I really enjoyed doing and I could usually pass the tests with very little studying. Even science classes I did okay in. But there was one thing that I just could not do, which was anything beyond basic mathematics. Uh, to, to, to bring this to a point, because I know there's at least one more thing you and I want to discuss in our time here. When I was in the, uh, it was the, yeah, it was the 11th grade, the paperwork that was to confirm my participation in advanced placement courses, it would earn me college credit while I was still in secondary school, uh, were sent to my house the same day as they sent me, uh, they sent the deficiency reports illustrating how I was failing Algebra 2. So what do you think was recommended as a quote-unquote solution for that? Oh, I have no idea in those days. Oh, let me make it, well, those days were about 30 years ago, but the, yeah. let, me make, let me make it real simple. It was actually seriously suggested that I be taken out of the gifted program and move to regular academic classes so I could have more time to focus on my math. Meanwhile, I was already spending about 80 to 90% trying to pass that freaking class that I didn't care about because I hated the topic. I'm no good at it, and I have the opposite of brilliance and passion for it. It's like, I want to read more of this history stuff. I want to I do more creative writing. So, yeah. so where I'm going with that is, do we program people into the path of most resistance? Because when I look at that situation, if that had been my son that got that you know, report, I'd say, you know what, maybe, maybe we, maybe, you know, what's the absolute minimum that junior has to do to fulfill the math requirement here? And, has, and in fact, has he already done it? Is there a test he could take? just to get it knocked off right now and we can get him onto his brilliance and passion. Those would be the questions I would be asking. I wouldn't be saying, well, he's obviously a dumbass because he can't measure a triangle. So uh, let's take him out of all the gifted classes because he's too dumb to be in them. And uh, so he has more time to focus on math, even though he's already spending all of his time on it. Well, I have an answer for you. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, in fact, uh, this is an area that I really help people out on. Um, to really understand what's up with them, but also in partnerships. So uh, you're a person who are really looking for abstract results. That's what you really enjoy. Wow. Whoa, whoa, pause. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking for the hidden camera and whether you have it aimed at the desk where I keep my diary. 
holy hell. You, you, you got that on me based on that story I told you? Yeah. Damn. I'm doing, I'm doing some of this for dramatic effects so our listeners gather the power of what you, John, just did. Is you took a story that I told and you used it to identify something very important about my character and what I seek. Exactly. I mean, this is, this is something I know through self-awareness, but I'm illustrating the sales and power. Now, back to you. Okay. So uh, you're an abstract result person, and then there's physical result people. And, and how this works in, in uh, marriages, which I've actually dealt with and helping, helping them through it, uh, is um, uh, one, uh, the, uh, the husband happens to be an abstract result person. And he calls up and his wife and says, gee, how would you like to go out to uh, dinner tonight? And so he wants to create a nice atmosphere and that's abstract. So uh, what she does is she uh, calls up and says, oh, by the way, I brought your uh, cleaning home so you don't have to go. That's physical. So, the, so she's showing affection and he's showing affection, but he, she complains that he's not doing enough at home physically. And he says, how come you never invite me out to dinner? Abstract. Uh-huh. So once they get that, that they're, they're actually expressing their affection, but they, they, are, they are not communicating, then once that happens, it's all done. It's over with. They really get it. So what he does is he, he, he really has to force himself to start thinking about what's physically I can do around the house. And then she makes it a point, I'm going to call him up for lunch today. And it was solved. It, it, it was that simple. It was solved. But where it really becomes important in careers is there's, there was a um, uh, gentleman came to me and he, he, he used to set up uh, uh, all the uh, speaking equipment for bands and he loved it. And being around bands, being around music, somebody says, you know, you got a great personality. Why don't you try selling life insurance? So he says, okay, I'll go do that. And he, he, he quit and he tried. He finally wanted to get away from, he wanted to wear a suit and all that. So um, he tried it, and it lasted about two weeks, and uh, he came to me. And so I, I told him quickly that you're after a physical result person. And so what physically are you selling when you sell life insurance? And he thought, and he thought, I said, I told you, you you're selling a piece of paper with ink on it. That's all you're doing. And he got it. He got it right there. Oh, I'm wasting my time. I said, you're right. He went right back, and but now he had new enthusiasm. He had new energy because he really saw that he had been where he should have been in that, in that genre, you might say. And he, he expanded from that, by the way. But he never left music. He, nev he never left what he actually did. It just, he got it bigger because he was enthusiastic about it now because he saw this as you know, a life theme. This is like what I do. But it was because... I separated out abstract and uh, theoretical. And another area where that conflict happens is architects and the actual builders. An architect has the abstract idea. The builder doesn't understand that quite often. Or when there is a conflict, that's what's happening. And reverse. Because the abstract doesn't understand the physical. The physical doesn't understand the abstract. And I find that consistency throughout all the people I've assessed. Yeah, um, I'm going to tell you, this is going to be a little bit of a confession, actually. Um, this happened about 10 years ago when I still owned a web development firm, and this is before I closed it down. So we, that model in itself is something that I would never do again simply because 
it didn't attract exactly many of the opportunities I was really looking for. We had some great clients and some of those clients are still with me in my business today and others have gone on or doing great things in other places and all that. But here's what I, here's what it came down to. A lot of these projects would get stuck because this was before the day of mobile compatibility. So we were still designing for desktops mostly. And this is back when, people still cared about Internet Explorer 6, rated as one of the 20 worst softwares of all time that didn't cooperate with pretty much any CSS standards. So uh, even beyond that, you'd have a client do get stuck on something like, well, but um, in all browsers, I need the, the last letter of my name to be directly under the lower right-hand corner of my headshot in the sidebar. Okay. So they would drag it out because they didn't see that it was that and what have you. And I said, and, uh, you know, one time I decided to try something after about three rounds of this, I said, we fixed it. They said, well, I don't quite see it. And I said, well, you got to clear your cash. Like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, I'm telling you it's fixed. They said, okay, now was it. Hmm. Uh, what I got out of that, and what, and I thought of that because I, you know, listened to what you were saying. My approach to that may sound a little bit like short timers disease to me. It was, uh, it was tough love because I was helping them get to the point where they're showing their website to the world because I knew, based on my marketing experience, there was not a single person out there that was actually going to give them money that would care if the last letter of their last name was directly under the right hand corner of their profile image in their sidebar. That's just not something people think about. And uh, I just shortcutted the conversation. So what I saw there was an architect who had this vision of the alignment between the last letter of their last name and the lower right-hand corner of their headshot. And my firm being the builder, which is getting them a website they can bring people to that has their products and services on it people can invest in. You're also a pragmatist, aren't you? Uh, in that case, yeah. And that brings up another point. Is it also the case that depending on where we find ourselves in situations, sometimes we're abstract and sometimes we're pragmatic? Oh, no, no. You can, you can be both. You yeah. Can be both. Yeah. At the, same, at the same time. I yeah. Mean, it doesn't mean you're either or always. What happens is you have a tendency. It's an overpowering tendency to be. Uh, I, do, I, do, I do tend toward pragmatism. I, okay. I, I, I really am that type of person who can say, oh, this is a 10-step process. Can we get it done in three? Yeah, but in, I, in, fact, in fact, that's a theme of my book. So, yes, I do tend toward the pragmatic. Right. And so th there you go. Now, if I wanted to sell you something, I'd be, I would show the benefits that are very pragmatic uh, to you in order to you see it conform to who you are. Uh-huh. Right, right. So if you were selling me a pen, you would tell me what? Oh, well, it has to be, well, yeah, a pen. Uh, well, I don't know. What, like, let's see. Uh, I wouldn't have to, I'd have to say it was inexpensive and it got the job done. Okay, that's good. Um, and, I've, and there are so many answers to sell me this pen. And one of the ones that um, I loved, and I think this was actually in The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, is where somebody gave somebody a contract to sign and then took away their pen. And the guy said, well, I need to sign. It's like, okay, well, I have a pen to sell you. Uh -huh. I don't think it gets more pragmatic than that. You have a contract to sign. You need a pen. Right. Yeah. So you're going to buy a pen to sign that contract. Like if I were to uh, walk into uh, 
a, uh, a pharmacy, which, you know, usually has a, a, a row in it, an aisle in it that has office supplies, you know, for kids and for people at home and stuff like that. So you can buy pens there. And I needed a pen. Uh, they're probably going to tell me, well, you got pens in all three. Go pick one up. Right. Yeah. So they're selling me a pen in the most pragmatic way. Right. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, uh, I have a, a pen that was um, uh, uh, made from the wood of um, uh, a forest um, in Europe. And uh, the money went to uh, environmental issues. And so um, it, it, had to be, it had to be a little more expensive, you can imagine. But it's what it represents for me. So, so, it, so it's all, the point is, is that a pen is just not a pen. It has meaning to you and it symbolizes something to you and to me, et cetera. But what it symbolizes has consistency. That's what the issue is. So it's not that anybody can just buy anything. They don't. They make it a point not to because they're always trying to keep, in a sense, their, their, their identity in, in unity, conformity, uh, cohesiveness. That's how we make decisions. And so you can see that in everybody you see, and especially with prospects, especially with prospects, because when I'm about to sell them something, what I'm doing is ha having them see themselves. That's what I'm trying to do. And, and a good real example is women. Women go into a clothes shop and they walk up to this rack and they've got a girlfriend there and they're both looking for her and she asks, she's going to go to a party or whatever. She grabs a dress, puts it up uh, under her chin, goes to the mirror and says, nah, this is not me. Nah, this is not me. Then the girlfriend comes over. Oh my God, this is you. Look at the color. Look at this. Look at the design. Yes, that uh -huh. is me. I'll buy. That's the point. That's what we're doing when we purchase. That is me. Now, that's sometimes they're not profound at all. And I call that, I do have uh, categories uh, for identifiers and signifiers and neutrals. So if I go and I buy toilet paper, that's a neutral, okay? Uh, but if I go and buy an expensive pen, that's more of an identifier. And so I right. do separate those out. And they don't, there are some theories about how to do this and they don't make that distinction. And that's very important, they kind of glob it all together. Anyway, so I'm looking for identifiers. And so um, once I find one, then I see the meaning of that identifier. And then by languaging it in that, uh, toward that identifier, I become an object to them, an object symbolizing what I'm speaking. And so I'm also in, in a sense absorbed into the sales event. Wow, that, see, that is, uh, this is probably the most unique take that began with the question, sell me this pen, that I've ever heard in my life. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I thought it was a great way to bring a lot of things together. Well, in a roundabout way, John, we have answered most of the questions that you gave us to ask. We didn't maybe ask all of them directly, but the answers manifested themselves through a lot of the conversation. But at the very end of what you just said there, you alluded to something, the one thing in my list here that you gave me in the green room that I don't think we've really touched on very much yet, so let's do that, is why in your estimation do some people not succeed after they attend workshops and seminars? Well, uh, there's a parallel there. You have a uh, uh, the leader, course leader, a very proficient, intelligent, uh, successful, uh, selling ideas to the public. 
So the public is sitting there looking at this, and the question is, is there conformity? So I was in a, uh, 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 a workshop, and this guy was just fantastic, great personality, knew how to speak, uh, persuade, very, very persuasive. And um, uh, so he said, this is what you do when you get on the phone. You tell him this, this, and that. And then you send in this letter, and you say this, that, and that. Okay. So I, I sat back with the other people back there and said, if I had his personality, I wouldn't be here. He can do that. I can't do that. I can't say that. And that's what happened to a lot of people in the audience. The advice was correct, but there, we did not conform to what was up. But there's another reason for that if we have time, which is off, it's part of it, but it's very interesting. So, so if Bob knows how to tie shoes and Bob teaches a little Johnny how to tie shoes, Johnny will be able to tie shoes. It works all the time. It's called syllogism. But if uh, 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 Bobby uh, knows how to sell, Bobby teaches Johnny how to sell, Johnny will be able to sell. It doesn't work. Why? Because selling is abstract and that syllogism is designed to teach something physical. Yeah. That's... Think, think about that one. Wow. Okay. Now, I'll give an example of how, how the, the tra my training works. I, I'm going to give a description and you tell me what you even think is happening. So okay. the, the statement is, uh, the father asks the coach, will he make it? That's the only statement. But there's ground there, grass. There's white rectangle on the ground. There are lines going in between 10 yards apart. There are two poles at one end, two poles at the other end. And his son is in the middle of this field. What do you think is happening? I'm guessing this is tryouts to be on the football team. Thank you. Now, I never said any of that, did I? No, you didn't. That's how you generate abstract ideas. It's by association. So if you teach a sales course through association, they will walk away being able to sell. But you can't do it the other way. You can't use a syllogism. Right. Yeah. So basically, you created a frame that led me to the conclusion that uh, this is a dad asking the coach if the dad's son was likely to make it onto the football team based on what was just seen in the tryouts. That's got what it. I got. You got it. Yeah. And in, fa in fact, I didn't, and when you first began telling the story, I wasn't sure if you were going into a sports analogy or whether the dad was asking the doctor if his son who had just been in a horrible automobile accident was going to survive the surgery. Well, now that you just told me right there that you have a holistic mind. Wow. Again, for our listeners, Wow, go ahead. Yeah, you, yeah, because and, and that's and that's the thing. And this is um, you know, what frustrates me and what sometimes frustrates other others when I speak with them about you know social topics or political topics and things of that nature. Uh, I if I if I'm want to have a discussion about something, I'm not interested in you know which side is right and which side is wrong. I'm interested in let's look at the entire picture in right. the entire context. Right. And you're gonna find you're gonna find that it is a very interesting conversation, and then there and then you have people on the other side that uh, of this debate that'll say, why, why can't he just wake up and realize? Got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you see, you see. Uh, and so yeah, it's yeah, yeah. 
holistic. So you're, a, and, you're, and, a, and, so you're a holistic thinker, thinking in theoretical terms, looking for abstract results, wondering why you're not good at math. That would be that would be pretty good. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have. A, I don't have <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then our time together, you managed to bring those four things together, and all you did was get me talking. Right. That's all you did. Um, you weren't here to sell me anything. I wasn't here to sell you anything. All we were doing is hopping on my podcast, the Business Creators Radio Show, to discuss the very topic of how to learn to sell what people are buying. And all you did was actively listen and create connections and threads. Right. And also uh, notice that I, I can't see you. Yeah. So I'm not reading any body language at all. Yeah, it's even more powerful because this is an audio show. And here's something else that might tell you something. The reason why I decided to do an audio podcast only is because I don't want to have to care about my backdrop. I don't want to have to worry about fixing my hair. Or, uh, you know, well, I shave it anyway, but uh, <laughs> uh, I don't have to worry about that. I don't want to have to worry about putting on a shirt. I don't have to worry about making sure my couch is tidier or, or that I'm sitting in a certain posture or anything like that. And when I get, when I, and what I really like to do, and I've been doing a lot of this during our conversation, is I like to pace around the room because when I go into massive creativity and intellectual mode, I find it moving around ex accentuates that. Oh, absolutely. That would, look, that would all look really dumb if it was on video. No, I understand that fully. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so, uh, so what I did is I took, as you can tell, I took philosophy of language and approached, uh, uh, actually we're talking about human communication is where we're at. Yeah. And so uh, I approached human communication and what does it mean to buy something? And what they're doing is they're bringing an object in their life that helps them conform to uh, their own identity. And they want to empower their identity. They want to uh, learn more about their identity, et cetera. And so uh, this is what I was doing. And I realized it. that's the difference. And so you can also tell that this is a very different approach to sales. This is not taught anywhere that I know of. Yeah, true. Well, I got to tell you something, John. We are actually just about the top of the hour. We have about two minutes left, believe it or not. Time flies. And what I want to do is I want to give you a good one of those minutes for those of our listeners who've been really been leaning in and enjoying this and want to know what the next step is in terms of interacting with John Boris and what that can lead to. Just tell us a little bit about that, where to find you, what they have to look forward to, and all that. Well, uh, you can find me at johnboris.com. Yep. And then uh, you uh, follow the prompts and you could be assessed. Also, what I do is I create workshops and seminars that are very individually based or a small group. As a matter of fact, I can create a workshop uh, involving a single item. I don't, I don't create workshops about sales, the big idea. I, I want to know what, in fact, you are selling, and I can create a workshop around that. Uh, that's been very, very uh, uh, beneficial for people. Uh, also, there's many other areas that you can be able to tell that I, I involve myself with. Um, yeah, the, the, the four life themes, for example, which we didn't have yeah. time for today, love, justice, wisdom, and power. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to have to pick up a copy of this book on Amazon just so that I can dive into that because you've got me intrigued about that concept just based on what we've shared today. Yeah, the difference is you cannot escape those. That's the difference. Yeah. It's also universal and absolute. You cannot escape those four. There's a lot of personality profile tests that have four, 
but they're, uh, they're an option. They're contingent. They're not necessary. These are necessary. Right. Absolutely. So I tell everybody, go to www.johnvoris.com and you'll discover so much more about this awesome man we've had on our show today. So John Voris, founder of Authentic Systems, author of Discover the Power That Drives Your Personality, and so many more things you've accomplished that I encourage our listeners to check out. I want to express my appreciation for coming and joining us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure, too. You bet. And for everybody listening, we trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.